have our minds uh, wrapped around and have at uh, ready disposal some errors of the Catholic death of, you know, recently the uh, Catholic Church was in the headlines with the death of former Pope and all of the hoopla that was around that. Um, we didn't have to uh, have uh, news coverage about who would be the next Pope since they'd already had another Pope, but had they done that, we would have, you would have heard about the crazy ways where they, that they do that and the smoke from the chimney that tells that there's a new pope and people are waiting outside to know who that is and, and when that happens and all of that. Uh, we just uh, went through the, the festival season in, ca in uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic uh, cultures and, and uh, countries where uh, the Mardi Gras festival is one of those that was just concluded, which is a raucous party just prior to the Lenten season. So uh, that's a Fat Tuesday, which is the day before Ash Wednesday, which marks the start of Lent, that, where you have to give up certain things uh, prior, to eat, prior to Good Friday and Easter. Um, the, the traditions and teachings of the Catholic Church that are simply nowhere found in the Bible. And tonight I want to look at some of those things. We're not going to cover all of the errors of the Catholic Church, but I want to talk about some of the major errors, and we could add to this list, and, um, but we need to be prepared to share some of these things with folks as we come into contact with them. And I'm sure that Mark could get up here and do a much better job with this lesson than me because Mark comes from a part of the country uh, where Catholicism is much more prevalent than it is here in the South. But no doubt we're going to come in contact with folks, folks in the Catholic Church and uh, those who have been misled by the Catholic Church. And so let's look at some of the errors of the Catholic Church tonight. First, I want to tell you that Catholics have a false view of authority. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that it is an infallible interpreter of the Bible, that the Catholic Church interprets the Bible, and we need the Catholic Church to tell us what to believe. Um, this is from a Catholic publication called The Faith of Our Fathers. And it says, the scriptures can never serve as a complete rule of faith and a complete guide to heaven independently of an authorized living interpreter. In other words, you can't take this Bible and study it and understand what God's word is. You need an interpreter. There has to be an interpreter to tell you how to believe the Bible. It goes on and it says, we must therefore conclude that the scriptures alone cannot be a sufficient guide and rule of faith because they are not of themselves clear and intelligible even in matters of the highest importance. You can't trust the scriptures. You can't, you can't just read the scriptures and understand them. They are not a sufficient guide and rule of faith. They're not clear. It's too fuzzy. You have to have an interpreter. Now, this is what the Catholic Church says about the Scriptures. It's interesting that the Scriptures don't say that about themselves. The Scriptures, in fact, tell us that we need to be careful about following religious leaders and just taking them at their word. In Jeremiah chapter 5, in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, notice what we read in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. Religious leaders at that time weren't to be trusted. 
They were ruling by their own power. They were prophesying falsely. They were telling their followers to do things that God didn't want them to do. That was the problem in Jeremiah's day. I believe it's the problem today with those in the Catholic Church. In Jeremiah chapter 8, they're dismayed in 9. In Jeremiah 8, beginning of verse 9, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So, that wis- so what wisdom do they have? Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. You couldn't say in Jeremiah's day, you know what? I'm going to just let the priest tell me how I need to live. I'll let the priest interpret God's word. No, that wouldn't have gotten you very far. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul warns us of the same problem in the church today, in the, in the Christian dispensation. The problem remains that there are going to be religious leaders who will lead us astray if we don't check them against the word of God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul tells the elders from Ephesus, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul said, there are going to be elders who will lead people astray. And we've seen it in our day, haven't we? Where leaders lead people astray, elders in local churches that don't stand for the truth, that begin to uh, practice false doctrine and to teach false doctrine. And we can't be guilty of just saying, well, that's what the elders said, or that's what brother so-and-so said that I really respect, or that's what sister so-and-so taught me. We have to go back to what the scriptures teach. And so the, the Catholic claim that the scriptures are not sufficient to be our rule of faith, that we need an interpreter. That's not true, is it? The Bible warns us against that. But also along the lines of this claim, that they say the the scriptures are not of themselves clear and intelligible, even in matters of the highest importance. The scriptures aren't intelligible. They're not clear. You can't understand them. You need someone to tell you what the scriptures teach. That goes against what the scriptures say about themselves as well, doesn't it? In Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning of verse 3, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have written briefly already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul said, the Spirit told me some things, and I wrote them in a mumbled up, jarbled up mess that you won't have any uh, hope of ever understanding. No, he said, I wrote them so that when you read them, you can understand them. We don't need the Catholic Church to interpret the Scriptures for us. Paul said we can understand them ourselves. And so the Catholics have a wrong view of authority in that they believe that they have to be the interpreter for us of the Scriptures. Furthermore, the Catholics believe that the church is the source of authority, that the church can dictate teachings that are outside of God's Word. They go to pass a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse 15. Paul says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest knowest how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The Catholics use this verse to say, you see here, the church is what creates and establishes truth. They're the pillar and ground of the truth. The problem is that that's not what this language is, in, is uh, teaching us, is it? Pillars don't establish anything. They simply hold something up. Pillars support and hold up the truth. And the church's job is to hold up the truth, to proclaim the truth, not establish the truth. The church doesn't establish the truth. Instead, the Spirit established truth. In John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. The Spirit taught the truth, not the church. The church can't come up with its own teachings, its own doctrines, its own positions. The Spirit has guided us to all truth. It guided the apostles to all truth, and they revealed it to us. So much so that Jude could write in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The truth has been delivered to us. We don't need a church or any kind of organization or any man to tell us new truth. It's been delivered. We don't need the Catholic Church to tell us the truth. Furthermore, the Catholic Church believes that when it makes a proclamation, specifically when the Pope makes a proclamation, that it is infallible, that what they teach is truth and it is infallible, it is as infallible as the Word of God itself. It's interesting they believe this, even though they admit that they've been wrong on some of the things that they've taught in the past and positions that they've held in the past, but they still hold on to this idea of papal infallibility. And yet the Bible is very clear that this, this view is dangerous and is not acceptable. We or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what that you have received, let him be accursed. There is a standard, and the standard is not the Pope. The standard is God's Word. And if the Pope or the guy across the street says anything different than what we read here, he's to be accursed. The Pope is not infallible. The Pope is only correct in that he says things that align with what the Scriptures teach. And he cannot do anything other than that. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, a passage specifically uh, addressed to this book itself, but is applicable to the entire Bible. In Revelation 22, beginning of verse 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. We can't add to this book, and we can't take away from it. Catholics are doing just that. 
by following the Pope and saying that he is infallible, that the church can establish truth, that the church can interpret truth for us and tell us what we need to believe. It's very dangerous and it's wrong. But they're not the only ones that are doing this, are they? Many denominations are following this same path. And sadly, we can do the same as well. If we accept what someone tells us without verifying it against God's word, if we go up uh, uh, on something and we say that that is right without checking in God's word, it doesn't matter who said that. It's a dangerous proposition. Kids, it doesn't matter who told you this. If your parents told you something or a Bible class teacher told you something, we need to verify it from God's word. God's word is the source of truth. And so the Catholic Church is wrong in their false view of authority. They're also wrong in their unscriptural organization. The Catholic Church is a hierarchy of organization that we can read nothing about in God's Word. The Pope is the head of the church here on earth. We can't read about the Pope in the Bible. Approximately 20. The Pope, we have bishops, and those bishops are connected to approximately 20 or 3,000 dioceses. And under those dioceses, and those bishops are priests, and those priests are connected to some 222,000 uh, parishes. And then under those bishops and priests are the Catholics themselves, approximately 1 billion Catholics, 1 billion with a B Catholics in the world today. This hierarchy and this organization took over 600 years to become established as the church deviated from the organization that God intended and that Christ intended for the church that was established in the first century that we can read about in the Bible. It took about, took about 600 years for this apostasy to take place to where we got to the point that we had this hierarchical structure. The office of the Pope is unauthorized in the Scriptures. We can't read anything about it in the Scriptures. Instead, we read about the organization that God intended for the church. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, notice this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. We have bishops and deacons and saints in the church at Philippi. And we could look at other passages, 1 Peter chapter 5, for example, that would tell us the, uh, the rule of those bishops and the authority of those bishops was limited to the local church, 1 Peter chapter 5. They were not responsible to lead anything other than the local church. That's the only organization that we can read about in the entire New Testament. That's the extent of the churches with elders and deacons and members in it. That's it. That's the extent of the organization. None of this diocese, parish, bishops, priests, and so forth. That's the only organization we can read about. The Catholics have created an unscriptural organization. Furthermore, the Catholic Church is wrong because they misuse names and titles. They misapply scriptural and biblical titles, and they've created titles and names that can't be found in the scriptures, and they are wrong for that. For example, there are, uh, the priest is called the Father in the Catholic Church. The Pope is called the Holy Father. 
Yet the Bible is very clear that that term should not be used of men. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Now, can you imagine that? Jesus said, don't call anyone your father, and yet the Catholic will call the Pope their holy father? A name that is reserved for God in heaven? Amazing. And so it goes on. We have the Pope himself. That term is never found in the scriptures. Pope means father. Again, using this idea that is contrary to what Jesus said. And then the Catholics are well known for their use of the word saint. We just recently, I suppose, I don't know exactly when it was, celebrated St. Patrick's Day. St. Valentine's Day last month. Towns are in our country are named after saints. San Diego, uh, St. Louis, named after saints. Yet the Bible is clear that all Christians are saints. You know, to become a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to go through a canonization process. To be a saint in the Catholic Church, first off, you have to be dead for five years. You can't be a saint unless you've been dead for five years. I think there may be some exceptions to that. You may be able to get on the fast track if you're a really good Catholic. But I think in general, you've got to be dead for five years. Forms a diocesan tribunal to investigate proceeding with making this person a saint. And then they call witnesses before the tribunal to recite and recount concrete facts on the exercise of Christian virtues that were portrayed by this person that are considered heroic. That is, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and the cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, and others specific to his state in life. So you've got to get together And they've got to produce evidence that you were a good Catholic, in other words. In addition, they gather documents to to substantiate this. And at this point, the the Christian is given the title of servant, or sorry, the Catholic is, this dead Catholic is given the title of servant of God. So if you've been really good, they call you a servant of God. After that, a panel of nine theologians votes on the candidate's theological virtues. And all you need in order to proceed to becoming a saint is you need a simple majority of that nine. So you would need five at least to vote that you did possess those virtues and that you would be a candidate to be a saint. And then the cardinals and bishops make a judgment on the case. If their judgment is favorable that, yeah, all the facts have been substantiated and we did get a good vote count, that this person could be a potential saint, then it goes to the Pope. After that, they need to verify that a miracle happened, that there was a miracle connected with this individual while he lived. Or, uh, and, uh, and then the candidate will get the title of blessed. He goes through a process called the beautification. He begins, he then gets the title of blessed. To finally become a saint, there has to be another miracle attributed to the intercession of the blessed or this, the person who is 
a potential saint. There has to be a miracle that is attributed to asking him or her to intercede for you. Uh, And then if there was a miracle that they can attribute to this person or a supposed miracle, we know what how miracles are today, a supposed miracle, then they will call this person a saint. You've got to go through all that hoopla, a process you can't read anything about in the New Testament, can you? Nothing even closely related to that that they've created and formulated in order to call someone a saint. But the Bible tells us that all Christians are saints. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 again. Paul and Timothy wrote to folks who were not dead. They hadn't been dead for five years. They were still alive and kicking. And they were called saints in Philippi to all the saints in Christ who were in Philippi. They were still alive. They weren't dead. They hadn't gone through any tribunal. They didn't have any pope to determine if they were saints or not. There wasn't a pope in those days. And yet they were called saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of, our, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. It's called to be saints. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, To all them that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholics are all wrong on calling only dead, certain dead folks saints. All Christians are saints. That's clear from the New Testament. They also misuse the term priest. Priest is an Old Testament term we don't, uh, that was used for folks in the Old Testament in a special office, yet the New Testament tells us that all Christians are priests. Priests in the Catholic Church stand as a mediator between God and man. They wear special garments to signify their importance, which Jesus would uh, condemn as well. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Christians were called to be a holy priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 goes on and says, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. These folks that say that only a special, people, a special select few are priests do not align with what the Scriptures teach about all Christians being a priest. And Jesus is our high priest and mediator in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Jesus is our high priest. He is not, uh, our mediator is not some man here on earth that wears a special robe. Instead, it is Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. We could go on and on. The term nun that they use is a man-made term. There's no such thing as a nun in the New Testament. We can't find that. Uh, Other than we could read about nun in the Old Testament, and that would be Joshua's father. And Joshua's father did not live in a convent and did not wear a dress. I I don't know. I don't think they wore dresses back then. 
Joshua, Joshua's father obviously was a man, not a woman. They are wrong on their misuse of names and titles. Worship in the Catholic Church is false, is man-made, is not in spirit and in truth. The Catholics burn incense, which was used in the Old Testament, which is nowhere commanded or authorized in the New Testament today. They did use incense in the Old Testament. We read about incense in the book of Revelation in a figurative sense as being the prayers of the saints. But nowhere in New Testament worship is incense mentioned. And if incense is not mentioned in the New Testament, it's not authorized in New Testament worship. And the Catholics are wrong to use it. And there are many folks in the denominational world today who would agree that that is wrong to bring that from the Old Testament because it's not authorized. I want to tell you, if it's wrong to burn incense, it's also wrong to use instrumental music, isn't it? Sure, they used instrumental music in the Old Testament, but it's nowhere mentioned in the New Testament today. And so if incense and burning of incense is wrong in the New Testament church, which it is, so are instrumental music, instruments of music. Those are wrong as well. On the same basis, they stand and fall together. Along those lines, though, the Catholic Church does use instrumental music in their worship. This uh, did not happen until about a thousand years after Christ's death. About a thousand A.D. is when they first brought in the instrument of music in their worship. Folks today in the religious world would say, you know, I think instruments have been around all, all along. No, they haven't been around all along. It took about a thousand years before the Catholics even began to use instruments of music in their worship. It was later than that for other denominations. Catholic, um, instrumental music is a recent invention. First century church did not use instrumental music. Catholics are notorious in their worship uh, for saying vain repetitions. Have you heard the vain repetitions of the Catholic church? The Hail Marys? Repeatedly saying the Hail Mary, pray the rosary. You know, that's 150 Hail Marys that are repeated over and over again. Vain repetitions. They're said the same way. Even, it seems, without thought, over and over again. Hail Marys, not to mention the fact that they're praying to Mary rather than to the Father that Jesus told us to pray to. But Jesus is clear that we're not to be using vain repetitions. Matthew chapter 6, beginning of verse 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Don't be using these vain repetitions, Jesus said. You won't be heard for them. They're wrong in their partaking of the Lord's Supper. They partake of the Lord's Supper every day of the week, I understand. There is no specific day when you take the Lord's Supper. They offer it every day in Mass. And when they offer that, that would be in violation of the authority that we have in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And furthermore, only uh, the laity only partake of the bread. And a certain few then partake of the fruit of the vine. And you can see this if you watch a Catholic Mass in procession. They'll walk up and the priest will put a... Uh, a wafer on their tongue of just the bread, but where's the fruit of the vine? Yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, we understand that we're all to partake of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in the eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after saying, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as, you, as, a few, as a few of you drink it. No, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. They go together, don't they? The unleavened bread and the fruit of vine, they're not separated. A certain number doesn't take of one and not the other. No, we take of them both together. The Catholic Church is wrong in their partaking of the Lord's Supper. And then tonight, I want to tell you that the Catholic Church is also wrong for demanding celibacy. The Catholic Church is notorious for demanding celibacy from its priest. They, they uh, demand that a priest be celibate. And celibacy certainly is not sinful, but demanding celibacy is. The scriptures are clear about that. The Catholics say that the priest must be celibate. Yet we know that Peter, who they claim was the first pre, uh, first pope, the Catholics demand that the pope be celibate, but Peter, who they claim was the first pope, he wasn't, but they claim that he was. We know that he was married. We know that Peter was married. We can deduce this from a couple different angles. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 beginning, Peter writes this, The elders who are among you I exhort... I, whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter says, first him as an elder. That's important. Because we can turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the qualifications for an elder, what does it take in order to be an elder? 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Peter was the husband of one wife because he was an elder. We know that for sure. Peter had a wife. And we can read about his wife over in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 40. Luke 4, beginning verse 38. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and served them. While When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Simon Peter had a mother-in-law. And you can't have a mother-in-law unless you have a wife. Simon Peter was not a celibate man. And so they're wrong in demanding that their priest be celibate. 
and, and claiming that Peter was the first priest. Furthermore, the Scriptures are clear that we cannot demand celibacy and be pleasing to God. The passage that, Luke, that Joseph read for us in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning of verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 4, or 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, beginning. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. There's a problem with forbidding to marry. It's not God's will that we forbid to marry. Catholics forbid their priests to marry. It's a contradiction of God's will. There are some other things here that you can see that pertain to the Catholic Church. I don't believe this, this passage is limited to the Catholic Church, but they're guilty of a lot of this, aren't they? Speaking lies in hypocrisy. We've seen a lot of the lies that they speak. We've seen the hypocrisy and the blasphemy of what they speak. Uh, they forbid to marry. They command, uh, abst command to abstain from meats. They're notorious for that, of commanding to abstain from meats. Lots of things going on here that are not pleasing to God. Well, tonight, I thought we'd spend just a few minutes looking at just a few of the, of the errors of the Catholic Church, their false view of authority, their unscriptural organization, their misuse of names and titles, their false worship, and their demand for celibacy. There are many more that we could talk about, but uh, I think this is a good uh, start for us to be prepared to explain to others. We've seen the danger tonight of of failing to demand Bible authority for all that we do. We've seen the danger of deviating from God's Word. When we deviate in one small area, as small area as you can imagine, once we deviate, we open the door. And if we're going to be logical and consistent, we have to let any deviation stand. And if we deviate just a little, Ultimately, we'll be, we'll be as far off as those who are following the Catholic tradition. We must demand Bible authority in all that we do. And that is for our corporate work and worship together. We need to demand Bible authority for all that we do. But it's not limited to our work and worship together here as a church. It also applies to my personal life. I need to have Bible authority for everything that I do personally, how I live my life how I interact with my family, how I interact with my fellow man, how I conduct myself on the job, how I conduct myself in the community, how I think. Everything needs to be directed by God's Word. I have to have authority for everything that I do. And if you're here tonight and you've not been submitting to that authority, you've not been living like you should, there's no better time than right now to make that right. And if we can help, will you let us know while we stand and sing?